Welcome to the Future of Consumer and Retail podcast by SAP. In this episode, we're offering event highlights from FMI Midsummer, a strategic executive exchange facilitated by the Food Industry Association. Our goal is to bring you a concise summary so you can keep a pulse on the leading industry trends. I'm Matt Gardner, joined by my colleague Randy Evans, both of us part of SAP's consumer advisory practice after many years leading teams at retail companies. Randy, welcome to the podcast. What did you feel were the overall themes from the conference? Thanks, Matt. So the first session was led by Leslie Sorensen, who's the CEO of the FMI organization. Leslie's been there for quite some time, and she's got this nice demeanor that really played well to the topics that she wanted to talk about, and that were permeating the entire two-day session. First was omni-channel, and she dropped into a lot of interesting content around omni-channel, what it actually means. The second was consumers' relationship with the kitchen and what that means for food retailing. The third was food as medicine, really interesting topic. And lastly was social issues and how that's impacting the industry. Thanks so much, Randy. Let's explore these four subjects one by one, starting with omni-channel. I know Leslie spoke to a few key stats, including the expectation that around 30% of shopping would be through digital channels by 2027, and that in 2020, it only took six weeks to reach that percentage between late March and early May. What else did you see around Omnichannel in the sessions today? There's always this perception in the food industry when something's hard to do or something's not easy to perform or cost money. The hope is that if we just wait it out, it'll go away. And she announced very clearly that it is here to stay and that all food retailers must be able to acknowledge that and get on the bus and try to figure out how to make it better at their companies. Absolutely, Randy. I know at many companies throughout my career, we've been focused on omni-channel, but the adoption of e-commerce as a primary channel was particularly slow. This acceleration that we've experienced over the last 18 months has really infused omni-channel into the fabric of the organization, and customers are choosing companies that have a solid showing across channels over those that do not. Yeah, I'd say that's really accurate. And there was a session with the CEO of Albertsons, Vivek Sankaram. 90% of his conversations were about digital, whether that's invest in technology or it's understand personalization or it's build micro-fulfillment centers on the backs of their stores, whatever they need to do to ensure that they're addressing the digital shopper is what needs to be done. They're a $60, $70 billion food retailer, so that's a big chunk of business in the U.S., so very interesting and honestly pleasing to see that they've recognized that digital is the wave of the future and they've got to address it. Digital is clearly something that is increasing because people are at home, and that actually bridges into our second topic quite readily, which is the consumer's relationship with the kitchen. I know in one session they said that there was a 30% increase in kitchen electronics for people starting to make more things at home, and this also extended into other categories like games and toys, making life more enjoyable at home. I'm curious, what did you notice about the consumer relationship with the kitchen? When the lockdown took place, like March 3rd or whenever that was, the consumer was shocked. All of a sudden, they couldn't get fast food and they couldn't go to the restaurant. And and it was such a part of our lives. First, they were shocked. Then they were disappointed. But then something happened and they embraced, if I'm going to cook from home, then I'm going to get in and I'm going to learn how to cook. 41% more people are cooking at home even after the lockdown. 58% more are eating at home than before. And you mentioned that 30% increase in home kitchen appliances. 
I personally remodeled my kitchen and I now have a smart stove that I can go to an app on my phone and turn it on. I can put a probe in whatever I'm cooking and that probe will tell me on my phone what the temperature of the product in the stove is. So it's been interesting to see and really fun to see the embracing of the cooking task at home to go from focused on finished goods like food service and moving towards buying the raw material, finding a fantastic recipe, acquiring the raw material, creating that recipe, and then enjoying the benefits of your labor. I think it's been amazing and pretty fun to watch. And I know, like I said, personally, I now have a brand new kitchen that I can cook in and it's been fantastic. Another thing to think about is one of the hardest things prior to COVID that grocers had was matching food service quality and their version of it, right, in the deli bakeries. And it's a different world. A grocery store is not a restaurant. So it's really difficult to pull off that high quality. And as that food service went away and that home cooking concept kicked in, the requirement for quality finished good and raw material was rising in the customer's eyes. Subsequently, the grocers have had to react to it. What I'm hearing behind your words is that services including Grubhub and Uber Eats and other last mile delivery services have really trained us to recognize that we can have really great food from restaurants in our home. And that makes those self-service bars at grocery stores a little less appetizing. They weren't. They have to be. <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not an option. It's a part of the future. It's part of the requirements. Yeah, that actually reminds me of the session with Craig Boyan, the HEB president, that mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic, they offered something to a handful of local restaurants in each market to sell their food in store with all the proceeds going to the restaurant. They were just doing a community service to support the food segment that was hardest hit. And he mentioned how it was a totally new process for restaurant owners to pick the product, to cook it, to get it under 40 degrees quickly, and deliver it via the supply chain. And I was amazed, honestly, by the heartfelt nature of what was offered. I've had the good fortune of working for HEB for a portion of my career and actually working with Craig in several projects as he was ascending at HEB. And I'll just say this. Their culture standards is unbelievable. All of the things that he talked about, about sustaining the restaurants, they, the goal wasn't to make money off it. The goal was to make sure that those restaurants had a chance to survive this period of time where there was no business. It's a very benevolent company, and I'm not surprised by their reaction. Yeah, that brings to mind the importance of trust and transparency that both brands and retailers need to have with the evolving consumer. And that it's moved in a lot of ways from just delivering consistently every day to realizing that people are putting these products in their bodies and in their families' bodies. It's at a level of intimacy that touches into an opportunity in the evolution that we're seeing in the food industry. Steve Presley, the chairman and CEO of Nestle USA, said that they were really taking this head-on with what the problems are that consumers are trying to solve. He said his organization is constantly trying to help them make the right decisions every day. In what ways can we be more transparent that we can provide the detail that the consumer needs to make an informed decision? This is becoming the foundation of trust. Good, clean facts to make the right choices for them and their families, and that in itself can deepen the relationship. That's amazing. It sparks me to the next topic of our discussions, and that's food as medicine. As you view the consumption of food as not only the caloric need to sustain your existence, but also to improve your health, 
That's an incredible concept. And it also solidifies the responsibility to safeguard the consumer's health by the way that you communicate and actually the way that you make the food that they're eating. The concept of I'm not just providing sustenance for my customers, I'm providing the ability to keep them safe and healthy. It's a really big responsibility. That brings to mind one of the sessions with Kevin Holt, the CEO of Whole Delays USA, a global grocery retailer. In their stores, they have several systems of stars to help consumers make informed decisions consistently. One is from the health point of view, salt, sugar, and fat, and then they've also added one around sustainability. And they said this is what consumers are now demanding. They need to have these multiple lenses on where things are coming from, how they're being sourced, and how good they are to consume. And that actually provides a bit of a bridge to our fourth topic, social justice. Another point that the Nestle USA CEO made was about aspiring to be great within the community. And this is as an industry, not just as a company. How the ecosystem that is the food industry and its entire life cycle can be clean and can really drive things that become embedded into the culture and the fabric of society. What was highlighted for you around the topic of social justice? You know, it's a little sensitive, a little touchy, but Leslie did a phenomenal job of diving into it without any hesitation. The food industry, retail specifically, but all of the food industry became part of the essential workforce, right? You're not locked down. You're going to go to work because you're providing food for us and you're our only source for food. So you got to get it right. Everybody had needs. Everybody had the same problem. And the grocery industry, including suppliers, took risks, went to work expose themselves. Just a list of things that were heroic is long and distinguished. But the truth was none of it was prejudicial. It was all done equally for all of us because us meant everybody that was all in the same boat. They're not taking a lot of credit for it, but I'd like to acknowledge that the response was wonderful and worthy of calling out. The other thing that she mentioned, there are issues that have to be addressed. And the answer is not waiting it out. The answer is addressing it. It's a culture shift, and there's much to do. I'm with you, Randy. This highlighted something from another session that talked about just how customers need a collective universe of product sustainability and addressing social issues. There's a similar collective universe for employees, the culture of a company, the work-life balance, the values, and the safety protocols. And that brings us to one of the last subjects we wanted to cover today on the podcast, Could you speak some about insights into workplace safety as it was shared in one of the sessions at the event? It was fascinating and it was heartfelt. And we had two executives, one from Kroger, one from Martins, that had been at the company when a workplace event involved casualties. Two of them were at stores, one of them was at a distribution center. Back in the day when I was a meat supervisor for Lucky's in Southern California, we had an incident in one of my stores in San Gabriel Valley. Number one, it was scary. Number two, it's emotional. And one of the most amazing thing in the session, they talked about how the CEO of Walmart called the CEO of Kroger and said, we just went through this. We've studied it. We have a strategy now, and we would love to share that with you. But think about these two behemoths fight it out every day across the country and compete like crazy. But in this time of need, Walmart saw that it was something that competition with them didn't matter. What mattered was the people. It was heartening to see that even though we're in this competitive world that we all deal with, these two companies could say, we're going to take a few minutes and talk to each other about our people. It was was pretty amazing. It was very good. 
I can't think of anything better as a closing theme of what we saw from FMI Midsummer, collaboration. That we're moving beyond being so close to the chest with our own processes and our own solutions. That we're putting people first. And we're seeing that connections made across companies anywhere in the ecosystem is increasing value for everyone in a way that no company isolated can achieve it on their own. Yeah, I agree, Matt. When we say collaboration, we're usually talking about, hey, can I get my deals from you electronically, Mr. Supplier? Or can you bring me your new item forms digitally so I can flow them into my system? Usually some kind of digital collaboration, but there was way more below the surface messaging about collaboration here than just the requirements or the methodologies of collaboration. And that last session with Walmart reaching out to Kroger and collaborating on how do you deal with people in a crisis that's another form of collaboration that we don't usually think about. And it was really cool to hear and see and understand. It was an exceptional conference. I agree, Randy. And thank you for sharing your insights with the audience. If listeners want to consult with you for further insights around business strategy, what's the best way for them to reach you? My email address is randy.evans at sap.com. That's the fastest way to get my attention. I read them all every day. And also thank you, Matt, for facilitating this conversation. It's been great. And it's been really a pleasure to drop into the details of what was talked about at FMI Midsummer. Really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. In this episode, we've unpacked expert insights from the FMI Midsummer event. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform to continue getting the latest consumer insights and visit us at sap.com retail. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Matt Gardner, and we look forward to sharing with you again in the future.